Hey, this is Gary. This is Mike. And Daniel. We're not professionals. We're just three addicts sharing our experiences, strength, and hope regarding recovery. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other addicts and to practice these principles in our lives. Welcome to another episode of the 12th Step Podcast. Thrilled to have you here with us tonight. Uh, I'm Mike. And this is Gary. This is Daniel. And we have a special guest with us tonight. Shane, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Shane. Uh, I'm a therapist working with sexual addiction here in the Riverdale area. Um, happy to be here with you guys again tonight. Appreciate the invite. Super. Thank you. Uh, we're going to spend some more time with the, uh, uh, with the uh, long-term recovery items. Uh, I feel like that those ought to be addressed. This will be a three-part episode. This is episode number two, where we're going to be talking about if other addictions were present, they were addressed, and the work to clarify and resolve family of origin issues, and their families were involved in early therapy. So with that, why don't you start us off, Gary? What do you think? Oh, sure. I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, it's interesting. Um, So the point we're going to talk about first is if other addictions were present, they addressed those as well. And I think that that is extremely important. In fact, I think I've mentioned in previous episodes that I've started to find a good deal more success when I treated, you know, at first I kind of approached it like uh, pornography and sex, you know, were just one addiction. And as soon as I realized that they had their own cycles, their own patterns, and, and kind of separated those out, I found, I found that handling those was much, had a lot more success. It was much easier to manage. I also found that there were a lot, of, a lot of other things going in my life that were feeding that same addictive cycle. I think I've also mentioned that I, I in, indulged in a good deal of retail therapy. Sure. I would uh, buy all kinds of toys and treats and things like that, as you know, to kind of soothe my, soothe myself. And it, it was kind of funny because the two addiction cycles they would feed off of each other. You know. If, mm-hmm. You know, if I felt bad for acting out in one, I'd go act out in the other to make myself feel good. Or sometimes I'd go, you know, go crazy in one to prevent myself from acting out in the other. It was, it, it, and I had to address, had to address all of that stuff. Shane, why don't yeah. you help us out with some of this? I, uh, this has been an interesting topic for me just because I've been in therapy now for three or four years. And in that period of time, uh, I have struggled to find those parallel addictions and yet, and yet starting to stumble onto some of those and recognizing now after some additional testing and things like that, of how significant those things are. So walk us through what that looks like. I think that um, one of the important pieces here in in understanding other addictions, um, remember that as sexual addicts, we get really caught up in our in our own personal thoughts and feelings, our own selfishness. We're we're incredibly hesitant to look anywhere except the specific things that seem to cause our sexual acting out. <clears throat> so. I love the fact that um, Dr. Carnes and ITAP have been very uh, insightful in the second book in the recovery zone in specifically focusing in on secondary addictions and other addictions that are present. I think it helps open the door to an understanding of how those addictions interface. And many Many of the people that I work with have a, a difficult time understanding how relationship addictions and feelings and emotions and addictions you know, related to those or other process addictions, how those are intertwined with the sexual addiction. 
and how simply treating the sexual addiction will help one feel good and feel empowered for managing that piece of their life. But if those other secondary addictions go un, untouched, they're still tethered to that primary addiction. And if allowed to continue, they can very easily draw one back into their sexual addiction as well. So I love that fact that the recovery zone uh, helps to cover that. Um, the other piece would be we have many addicts out there that are acting out in in several primary addictions. We might have uh, an alcoholic who's also a sex addict or a drug addict who's also a sex addict. Um, and take maybe sometimes a little bit of a false sense of pride in the management of the sexual addict part uh, without realizing that the other addiction may be getting more and more out of control or may even be growing or changing. Um, but they're so focused and so fixated on the sexual addiction, which brought them to treatment or it created the problems in their marriage or in their family, uh, that they're not really paying attention to what the other addiction is doing. And so I think it's important as an addict to be brutally honest with themselves, uh, lead that examined life, spend time with your therapist, talking specifically about all of the feeders that are adding into uh, the addictive process in your world. Very enlightening for me, no doubt about it. Some of the things that I've found in my own world have been very strange. Uh, money being one of those. I never would have guessed that the struggles that I have with money in relation to uh, uh, this addiction, obviously, but also um, just how I manipulate uh, members of my family and, and others, uh, just just constant have to be aware of how I utilize the resources of money to uh, to feed this addiction and to handle that control element that's so prevalent in my addictive behavior. So what are some of the most common that you see? Uh, I just wanted to add to the, to the money piece for a second. Um, if we think about the the kind of emotional power that we apply to money, finances, especially in today's world, right. um, it's, it becomes much easier to see how it becomes intertwined with our sexual addiction, our relationship management, all those kind of pieces. Um, back to your original question, uh, some of the pieces that I see the most are um, food addictions. Um, Present. Oftentimes when, <laughs> Present. <laughs> like that, oftentimes when, when someone is managing their sexual addiction well, I will either see uh, significant weight loss or significant weight gain. That would be me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, yeah. those, when that food addiction starts to take over yeah. because the sexual addiction is being managed. I also see a lot of latent relationship addiction uh, where people don't, don't really spend the time or energy to realize uh, how they're using relationships in their life to continue to feed that. Um, so a constant struggle in the treatment that I that I do with my addicts here is helping them to get back in touch with feelings and emotions. And oftentimes the addiction related illnesses that go along with some of those feelings can be pretty big. So um, those are some that I see probably a little bit more than others. How about gaming? Yeah, video games, <clears throat> electronics. Video games, um, screen time, uh, phones, tablets, all of those things are, are huge. Um, the constant need for that dopamine hit going back over and over and over um, to, to feed that. That's certainly a big one. Um, I think we're, we're just really getting good at being able to identify where and how that fits in. Um, but there's an awful lot of denial out there about 
what that means. And even the, even the definition of friendship that most of our video oh, gamers think that, you know, these people that they're interacting with online are their friends, and yet they've never met them. They wouldn't know them if they walked in the room right now. Yeah. Um, but we've developed some surrogate definition of what it means to be friends with somebody through an online presence. How many likes we get on Facebook or sure. how many yeah. we make a comment or something along those lines. Yeah. Absolutely. So. I think it's interesting you bring that up. I uh, uh, One of the things I noticed in my own processes, acting out was always a very uh, sort of a, a, a path. I always started with a very benign app. Usually it was sports related or maybe even the news. And uh, even today, after the internet has been removed from my telephone, it's interesting how it is I still... I still have that pattern of still hitting a sports app and then and then maybe hitting the news and then uh, and then realizing that oh my word I'm walking down this path but I, it, it doesn't end I mean there's no there's no app to hop onto with the internet and go to, to go act out so some of the things I've had to actually work on is actually remove the news literally the app from my phone to try and interrupt that processes just simply to try and fix or, or mix up the the process of trying to get it out of my brain because it's very much still just programmed in there. Start here, start there, and then end up somewhere else. So interesting how that works. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about Sage 2 is it, it does break those down. I mean, as we were working through those, I realized, yeah, you know, I, Shane has mentioned it many times for me, the element of fantasy. I have a, a lot in my life, uh, movies, books, games, and so forth. Uh, so, you know, coming to the realization that I use that a lot, through my addiction, uh, rage, you know, the element of rage and anger. Um, that's something, you know, I was kind of thought, oh, I'm not that angry of a guy, but it was more of a, a cold, passive aggressive anger that I would use. Um, you know, that would upset uh, my ex, and then that would kind of fuel uh, my addiction as well. Um, Is it possible to be addicted to anger in and of itself? Mm -hmm. That's a possibility as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, any, any mind or mood altering substance or experience? Yeah. Wow. As addicts, we have to be very careful what we engage in anywhere, even healthy behaviors. The gym can become a, an addictive process. Not that anybody around this table would know that. But, but, but we can get into... I have no idea what he was referring to there. <laughs> any, any behaviors that we engage in, even if they start out as healthy, if they're allowed to become mind or mood altering... Um, we run the risk of developing addictive processes around that. Let's yeah. talk about this food. Ha let's talk about this food issue. I, I love just, that one. I, 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 before we get into that, I just want to throw out there that I think I've been sober from my gym addiction for like twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about M and M's? Well, that's a different story. That, that, different goes, that goes. That goes to the food. food. Let's, let's talk about the food. interesting thing. My wife and I have discovered is is that we uh, um, we I'm amazed at how much emotionally eating we do. Literally everything mm -hmm. in our environment, everything in our world has to do with a meal. Mm -hmm. If we're having a hard conversation, we eat. If we're having a good conversation, we eat. If we're having a great time, we're, we're eating. And so consequently, when we come home and, and we're struggling emotionally about something, the first place we go is the pantry. I think, I think I gained something like 40 or 50 pounds in my first year of wow. recovery because I would get, I would get huge bags of M&Ms and just eat them one after another without even really thinking about what I was doing. One handful after another. Yeah, no, just yeah. seriously. Just, they were always, <clears> always <throat> an omnipresent thing for a long wow. time. 
I, th- I think I, all of you can take faith and take stock in the fact that every one of you still fits into the same size shoe that you wore when you were in high school. Hey, I hadn't thought of that, but that's nice. No, mine are actually a little bit bigger than high school, but that's okay. <laughs> There's always that guy. There's, There's, always, yeah. There's always one. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Very interesting. So what we're talking about in this particular case is, is in order for us to really address the sexual addiction, <clears throat> these other ancillary addictions all have to be addressed as well in order to, to, in order to move forward realistically with our sexual addiction. Sure, I think we have to be aware of the fact that, that everything that we do ends up intertwined in, in our addictive processes, right? We live in an addictive culture. Um, if you've read um, Don't Call It Love, there's a, a chapter in there on the addictive culture that very well spells out um, all the things that have changed in post-industrial society that continue to feed addictive processes. And I think it's an incredible eye-opener more aha moments that come from reading just that chapter in that book and probably anything else. But uh, again, Dr. Carnes has been very insightful and, and very thorough in his research with all these things. There's great insight that comes from that. And when you start to realize how you're falling into those same behaviors, um, it, helps you to, it helps you to realize how intertwined this is with your sexual addiction. Very interesting. Very interesting. Let's move on to the next. Okay. The next one identified, they work to clarify and resolve their family of origin and childhood issues. Um, That's also been very insightful for me. I had no idea. Uh, I always felt like that I came from a fantastic family and and that uh, I know that I had some struggles with my dad and I know I had some struggles with my mom, but but never realizing the impact that they had on my life. They had some things that they did and said that were that were, uh, I, have, I have now discovered had an awful lot of impact on me. One of those comments came from my mother an awful lot was, is she'd say stuff like, you're just too sensitive. And uh, I didn't realize how simple of a phrase that was, but what that was doing to me as a young child growing up and, what that was, and how that was making me feel. And what it really did is it meant that processing was not an acceptable thing. We didn't have an opportunity to really process deep, dark things. And and so, therefore, I probably didn't get an opportunity to explore some of the things that I really needed to explore. So let's talk about that for just a minute. What do you think? Sure. I think, you know, to be, to be fair, let's, let's throw out the caveat that we are not in any way, shape, or form saying that you should, you know, go off on your families of origin or your siblings sure. or any of that. Uh, what you'll find is that most addicts believe that they came from a, a decent family. Um, there are those outliers that have been, you know, parts of family abuse or neglect or, or you know, extreme kind of situations. But uh, for the most part, most of my addicts will tell you that I came from a good family. We're not trying to tell you that you didn't. We're trying to sure. get you to look at the nuanced pieces, some of the shame-based family rules, uh, some of those pieces that may have been present, that may have been happening, that you weren't aware of at the time. They, right. That was just taught to you and presented to you um, in the environment you grew up in as, quote, normal end quote, right? And so um, family of origin issues run deep. It's one of the most powerful parts of a, a full-on recovery process as far as I'm concerned. You, you've got to do that earlier work uh, to realize just how early on in some of our lives we, we got that degree of separation away from you know the straight and narrow path, if you yes, will, yes. and over the course of years how far off that path it, it leads us. So spend time in your therapy with your therapist going over family of origin stuff. Take, take the time and opportunity to do that work 
to identifying how you might be affected there. Yeah, it says it says very specifically in the book that we're referencing that uh, you use the steps in therapy to understand some of these issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for like me, uh, I I feel like I'm probably now just starting to work on that in, in a way that's going to be helpful. Um, you know, in the past I've I've known about it, I've mentioned it, but I've never really dug into it like we're starting to do, Shane and I now. So interesting to understand that component of our lives i think a piece of that in my world obviously is the is the religion side of mm-hmm. of the community in which we live and how how predominant that faith is and, uh, and my parents were very much a part of and included with all of that and and so consequently there ended up being a min- an element of shame that was uh that was, i'm going to clarify shame not shane shame that uh, that what comes with that then is is this this feeling all the time that you're never enough that's never complete yeah. i can't do it right um, and that somehow, some way, that that this higher power that we often refer to in our recovery is is looking at me in some negative view of things, and that's a very shameful experience for most of us. So, so talk a bit about that. Religion plays a huge role in um, a lot of the shame-based factors that we grow up with, and not in not just in you know the predominant religion in our area. Um, most religions carry some element of, of a shame-based factor there. Uh, there was a terrific article that was that was included in our uh, ITAP listserv just a week or so ago that was really speaking to the shame-based focus of some religions. Um, and, and to be fair, it's not that they're intending to, to put that kind of pressure out there. It's about how we interpret those Correct. things and the perspective that we take with that. Um, which means that it's very important for you to spend time in your therapy talking with your therapist about even the messages you got from your religion, your culture, um, and to see how many of those might be feeding your addictive process and and harming your recovery. I've actually, uh, we've done a podcast here on uh, on step two, uh, which is, you you know what step two is pertaining to, and we had, I had advocated that we ought to not be giving up on our religion or our faith of our youth, simply because we need to understand now, using our adult mind, to understand how that fit into not only our di- addictive processes and understanding how we felt like we were abandoned at such a young age, to now, as an adult, to be able to process that and understand that more completely. So great emphasis on the fact that this is not intended to say faith as a general rule is a poor thing or a bad thing in terms of how that affects us. It's just how we interpret it. It's how we, it's how we live within that. In within fact, that's going to be yeah. point eight of our discussion. I think we're going to talk about that in our next episode. Oh, very yes. good. In all honesty, most of us as recovering addicts will find that our understanding of spirituality begins with whatever we were taught and whatever we learned growing up in the religions of our family, right? Yes. Uh, it's through our recovery process and our 12-step work that we learn to adjust that and adapt that to a more spiritual focus as opposed to a religious focus. It was, it was interesting for me as I did my work with my family of origin that there were so many instances that I had taken and internalized in an unhealthy way. Yes. And it was so powerful for me to go back through some of that stuff and realize that the people in my life, in a lot of ways, were just doing the very best they could with mm-hmm. what they had and that a lot of the error was, you know, how I chose to internalize that. And a lot of that was because I was young or didn't understand or didn't have a complete picture. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny because as I started to do this work, I remember 
remember going home one day after a therapy session and gathering my kids together and said, kids, I've done the best that I could. And I'm going to save you a lot of time. When you start going to therapy, just start with my name. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic advice for everyone. <laughs> right? For our listeners in the far remote parts of the world, you know, if you just start your therapy and start with Gary's name. <laughs> it might help. It might help. Speaking of having our families involved, that's, that's the next point that's on our list is the families were involved early in therapy, you know. Um, and this played a huge role in my recovery. My, my family was involved very, very early in my recovery, actually right from the beginning. And, and I remember many, many times having all of them in the office with, with Shane. And, and some great, great moments came out of that. I'm going to be honest. I'm probably not the scholar on, on this particular topic. And, and, you know, Shane is calling me names even in silence from his microphone. But I, the bottom line is I've not been good at that. You may be the perfect example of how not to do this. <laughs> not to act. And so uh, all of you addicts out there can, can learn from Mike's example as to what not to do in this regard. Well, I mean, my, my question that pertains to this is how do you go about if your family isn't? Because, like, mine isn't involved. So how, how do you go about that in, in a good way? So here's my take on on that piece, and you know, some people out there may have some heartburn about this, but please hear me out. Um, my focus has always been family is an operational term; it's not a biological term. Um, some of the most abusive, neglectful, harmful, most difficult people that we ever encounter in our lives might have the same genetic strains running through their blood, right? And so I think it's important for all of us to be able to. To, to break the bands of that family myth um, and understanding that family really is just talking about a series of roles. And it doesn't have to be somebody biologically or genetically related to you that can fill those roles. Sometimes the best father figures, the best mother figures, the best you know brothers or sisters that you will find are not members of your biological family. And so it's important to understand the difference between family as a biological term and family as an operational term. I would, I would suggest to any of you out there you know, feeling like Daniel that I, I really don't have a supportive biological family, mm -hmm. take the time to look through your life and realize those people who are filling those roles who aren't related to you. My best friend in the world uh, lives in Las Vegas, and he's been my greatest friend and, and best strength next to my wife for over 30 years in my life. Definitely more of a brother to me than either of my biological brothers. I love my biological brothers to death, but Doug will always be uh, my number one brother in, in that relationship realm because family is operational, not biological. So uh, follow that up a little bit then more on what, what this is talking about. Does Doug serve a role in your recovery? Uh, have you shared with Doug your, your experiences of, of addiction and then and then shared with him uh, your need from him as a as a recovering uh, addict absolutely he's one of those in my in my bullseye of of relationships um, for those of you who have done treatment with me you know that that we we build a trust target um, identifying those people in our lives who who we trust the most and and place them accordingly on our trust target uh, Doug is one of only a handful of people in my bullseye uh, because he knows everything 
um, and he's a terrific support. So if my wife is not alongside with me at activities, Doug is alongside with me at activities. Interesting. So helping, to, helping to keep me. How about your parents? Focused. How about in that situation? Did you ever share with your parents your, uh, the issues you were facing? Um, I didn't share with them openly and outright. They found out about it. Okay. Um, clearly when, when, uh, when I was drinking was back in my high school years and just after high school, uh, my dad was much more attuned to it than my mom. And for all of the shame-based methods that my dad would use, that was one of the places where he didn't. Interesting. Um, he was pretty, uh, well, it, I think it helped that he was an alcoholic also. Sure. And so he knew uh, kind of what that meant, what that was going through. Uh, my mom was a little bit more naive. Um, I, I kind of think of my relationship with her the way that Gary describes his growing up. Um, I could do no wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, my my mom was very much my biggest fan, and and I think still is. Um, she's a wonderful lady, and she gave me every benefit of the doubt, even when I didn't deserve it. Yeah. So that's interesting. You know, something something that's brought up in here, and I and I wanted to to point out is that um, if you can get your family, your support people involved in therapy with you that a wonderful thing can begin to happen and that's that it actually begins to help them quite a bit you know uh, Shane Shane mentioned my mother and one of the one of the the family of origin issues that, that I had to to overcome was my mother used to tell me all the time that I was like this golden child that I could do no wrong and I I internalized that to mean that I could do no wrong, meaning that I didn't have permission to make any kind of mistakes. And right. so I would, that put a tremendous amount of pressure on me to live up to this ideal. That, mm-hmm. And that's clearly not what she she meant. But uh, my mother since then, you know, we've, we've since talked about that and she's been involved in, in my recovery. And it's kind of funny how that phrase has now had a different has come to mean something very different. She'll still use that phrase. Interesting. You know, but she, and it's, it's, it actually has come to mean quite a bit because, because she knows my story. She knows my struggle. She knows the things that I've gone through. And though to, and so to hear that framed in that context is a really neat thing. So now it might take years and years and years, you know, to find, you know, how your family is going to interact with this, and I've I've done I've done my recovery long enough that I've seen how people who didn't want anything to do with my recovery in the beginning have now come around and have started to 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 be involved in a little bit different way, you know. As as so, be patient with that, but it is worth it for sure. I, I agree with that. I think that's that's my I'm on the long term plan. I'm. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm seeing some great things happening with my children, but it's uh, it's coming from a different avenue and a different perspective. And I and, and my oldest is the only, really the only one that knows. I've elected not to share with my parents. My parents are elderly, and uh, I felt like that it would probably come across as being more, uh, um, hey, look, this all happened on your watch kind of a thing. And I certainly didn't want that. They're 85, 82 years old, and that's the last thing I need to them. To, to share with them at this point in time. So I've stayed away from that. But uh, my children, things are starting to move in a positive direction. So I, I appreciate your comment about being patient because I think uh, um, I'm certainly on the long-term plan of that. I want to I throw in one last caveat with this one um, because I think it's a big one that I run into a lot as I'm doing therapy with people. Um, this one speaks 
volumes to spouses of addicts, right? Yes. Um, and, and if you're not married, if you're in a long-term relationship or a committed relationship, it speaks to your partner in that relationship. Um, having them involved early and, and often up front in your therapy is a huge support yes. to your therapy process. Clearly, the, the clients that I have who do the best in their recovery are those who have a solid, supportive spouse coming through. Now, that doesn't just mean that their spouse comes through and does couple sessions with them or, or those kind of pieces. Um, spouses who have been involved with an addict for any length of time are definitely affected by the addict behavior and have their own betrayal trauma to work through, their own pains, their own difficulties. Uh, they have their own recovery process to go through. So it's very important for spouses to realize this isn't just uh, a man's problem. This isn't just um, the addict's problem. Um, they've been affected by it, and they need to do their own work to undo some of the damage that's been done there. So. Uh, any of you addicts or spouses of addicts that are listening to these podcasts, um, take inventory for yourself of what needs to happen within your relationship and to get involved in, in the recovery process along with the addict. Very good. Very good. With that, uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. So this is Mike saying uh, do the work necessary to find the peace that recovery can bring. And this is Gary encouraging you to do the next right thing. And this is Daniel saying, find the humility in your recovery. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, thoughts, or concerns, or have any suggestions for future episodes, please contact us at 12thsteppodcast at gmail.com. That is 1-2-T-H-STEPPODCAST at gmail.com. As a fellowship of recovering addicts, Sex Addicts Anonymous offers a message of hope to anyone who suffers from sex addiction. Check out saa-recovery.org.